Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. Thank you for joining today's episode. We're on a mission to share e-commerce logistics insights, trends, successes, and challenges from the leaders and innovators in our space. Consumers don't always care about two-day delivery. They don't always care about 30-minute delivery. They care about certainty. They know when they're buying for. If they're buying a dress that they need tomorrow for an event, they won't use Shein. But if they know that this event isn't for two months and they want to try a few different things, it works perfectly. Welcome to the Ecom Logistics Podcast in our special series, Shining the Light on Women in Supply Chain, Retail and E-Commerce throughout the month of March. Joining us today is Melissa Minko, Director of Retail Strategy at CINT, a global digital solutions provider for some of the world's largest retailers and companies. Previously, she was a senior principal advisor focusing on omni-channel retail, e-commerce, and social commerce at global research and advisory company Gartner and starting her career as a business analyst in merchandising strategy at Target. Melissa is a Rethink Retail Top Influencer, a Retail Wire Brain Trust expert, and a retail futurist whose methodology is rooted in cross-industry consumer insights and innovation. Melissa, we're super excited to have you join us today. Thank you for joining the podcast and welcome. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, based on that intro, I would say she knows a thing or two about retail. A thing or two. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a great place to start, Melissa. You know, you started your career just a little over 10 years ago. Um, And as I I just mentioned, as a merchandising strategy associate at Target and have really made a great name for yourself and and rose through the ranks uh, pretty quickly. So would just love to hear your story, your journey and uh, and how you got to this point. Thank you so much. Well, I guess it all started technically at Anthropology. I worked on the sales floor there in the summers during college, and I really enjoyed it. I couldn't believe how much process went into just being on the store floor. We would be there for up to three hours after stores closed and up to four hours before stores opened. And that was my first kind of access point into, oh, there's a whole world behind what you see when you go into a brick and mortar environment. And I really enjoyed it. I also had dreams of being a buyer. Um, I saw Devil Wears Prada. I got really anxious about it based on um, <laughs> a great movie. assessment of, of yeah how that works. Um, but I still kind of wanted to go after that. And I pursued a degree in marketing at UW-Madison. Really enjoyed that. And kind of the intersection between marketing and retail continued with that throughout my career and also ended up pursuing that in grad school as well. Um, at Kellogg, also mostly focused on market research and marketing. So just kind of double, triple, quadruple down on yeah. the hybrid between marketing and retail. But um, after college, I went to Target to work there for about two years, as you mentioned, in merchandise presentation and store layouts. Um, my training for the first 12 weeks was Target US, but I was immediately thrown into Target Canada once my training was up. So that was a a really fun experiment. And just before Target Canada closed down, um, I jumped ship and went to a company that was owned by corporate executive board at the time called Iconoculture. It was all consumer insights research. So doing advisory work. um, And I was focused on retailers because of the experience I had at Target. And then in, I believe, 2018, Gartner bought corporate executive boards. So I transferred over into the Gartner world. And my perspective in retail got much broader as a result of needing to do retail coverage for Gartner clients in addition to corporate executive board clients. 
Um, and then my current employer, CINT, was a client at uh, Gartner, and they kind of brought me over to do the work that I was doing at Gartner, but specifically for CINT and really enjoying continuing to be in this world. Yeah. And so just picking up on that thread, thread at the beginning, right, which is that target piece. So for the listeners, and we spoke about this in the prep as well. So I spent a few years at Target in Canada as well. I was there at the beginning and I was actually there at the end. And we discussed, uh, you were on the merchandising side. I was more on the distribution side of things, building the warehouses necessary to support the network. And I think everyone that was involved in that, and you know, for the listeners, just a little bit of background, launched in 2012. By 2015, January, bankruptcy was filed for Target in Canada. So it was a really short run. I was there from 2012 to 2015. And I guess uh, Melissa had uh, the honors of doing the same thing as well on that front. You know, if we were to, everyone's got some experiences around it to share. Well, how do we take those experiences as we talk about moving from one country to another and specifically retailers and now brands, right? The organic brands. So if a retailer like Target had a challenge moving into a country that is so parallel to the United States, right? Like if, if other than the currency being different and having a different type of government, it's pretty much, you know, we are the same people. And there were still struggles making that happen. What would you say to brands, you know, based on those experiences, like what not to do and what should they do when moving to a new country? Yeah, I think this is an even more important lesson now that globalization is everything in retail. I mean, we have one of the biggest retailers is Shein now in the US, and that's a Chinese retailer, right? Reach is wider than it's ever been. So uh, consumers have much more access today to international brands than they even did back in 2012, 2013, 2014. So these are really important lessons that I think a lot of retailers are learning now and Target learned it back then when we were there. The biggest things I would say is, first of all, and you kind of alluded to this, don't mistake proximity for sameness. Canada is, you know, you could call it our front yard or our backyard. It's so close to us, but that does not mean that people shop the same ways there. That doesn't mean it's the same language for everybody there. In a lot of cases, the primary language is French. We don't have that being the case here in the U.S. There are very different regulations and restrictions on retailers there just because we have very different uh, political structures. There were also some issues, and I, I know you know this because like you said, we talked about this with the technology that was being piloted. Target Canada was an experiment with so many variables that were brand new. And that is just not ideal. Usually you want to have as many control variables as possible when creating an experiment. And there was a lot of new technology being rolled out at the same time as they were rolling out into a new environment. Yeah, no, I, 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 I just, I'm just shaking my head going, yeah. yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. And again, there were some, you know, reasons that were kind of beyond me, beyond my, mm -hmm. you know, pay band, let's just say. But yeah. certain decisions, specifically on the technology front that I can call out where, hey, we have all of these amazing tech in Target and in the US that is so mature. Yes. And now we are going to go into this country with brand new ERP, brand new planogramming system, brand new forecasting mm -hmm. and replenishment, brand new distribution systems, logistics, new partners, everything's new. And it was like, we give you a year and a half to build this entire network and launch 124 stores through the summer. I mean... And, you know, and, and use the same processes, right? So if you got new systems, sometimes it's a good idea to use new processes as well. And, you know, replication of existing processes were brought over. 
I didn't get to play very close part in like the merchandising side of things, but I could see the decisions of merchandising having an impact on me, right? Which was yeah. which was uh, essentially having, you know, 12 trucks of pink Barbie trucks sitting outside, right? Like loads yeah. full of that stuff just sitting outside just because a merchandising decision was made that, oh, we are getting a fire seal from some manufacturer in China. Let's just pick it up, right? Yeah, I, you know, I can speak to it from a tech standpoint, but yeah, to the, to the other points that you make, right? Little nuances like, you know, Black Friday versus Boxing Day, right? And yes. and, and now Black Friday is a big thing in Canada as well, but yeah. it wasn't back in 2012, right. right? Like, so if you shape your demand accordingly, you're going to miss out on something. So it's it's little nuances. Yeah, very interesting. Any, anything else that you would like to say on, on that front, like anyone trying to enter the Canadian space or vice versa, right? Any Canadians trying to enter the U.S. space? Yeah, I would say there are way more differences than you think, which is a positive thing. Definitely lean into those differences instead of kind of sweeping them under the rug. And the other thing you alluded to was that sense of urgency. This was all attempted in such a short period of time, which doesn't do anyone any favors. So I would just say slow and steady wins the race. Take your time. It's both an art and a science. I, I really think we tried to bring so much U.S. process into Canada and you really have to strike the perfect balance. So um, I'm very passionate about leveraging consumer insights and all that market research that I talked about in the beginning. It felt like there wasn't enough time for that. And, and so that's another piece that I think is really important too. You dropped a, a really great nugget for us, Melissa, with Sheehan. Yeah. And <laughs> I have, you know, three teenage girls ranging from 13 to 19. So I am yeah. like the bullseye of their ICP. Yeah. And I'm actually really fascinated by their entire business model and would love to get your perspective because, you know, my girls will, you know, let's just say get, they get some money for the holidays or for their birthday. The first thing they do is go to Sheehan's website and, you know, they drop $50 or $100. And the next thing you know, I almost have like a, a freight truck backing up <laughs> right. with like all this product. But yeah. the reality is, you know, and my kids, I think, are certainly of the, you know, that this next generation coming out of COVID where fast and free is the expectation from a, a consumer experience perspective. But with Sheehan, they've created this model where the exception is maybe I'm going to get it in three weeks. Maybe I'm going to get it in four weeks and everyone is okay with that. And they can't, they still rush to that website yep. to place an order. And again, the product is, is less expensive um, and maybe quality, you know, so there's that triangle, like what do you want? Speed, quality, you know, uh, convenience. Price. So, so we just love like how you see that the adoption right there. And, and do you, is that, a, a model others could look at to embrace as well. So I have to say, I'm a big fan of sustainable initiatives. So I can't with my whole heart say yes. that anyone should embrace this model because I think we all know anything fast fashion is not sustainable. It's not good for the environment. It's, it's also not really good for the consumer because it creates this kind of instant idea where they're just generating so much of their own waste, it, it ends up just right. not even being good for the economy, right? So I can't really say it's a winning model, but is it winning right now? Absolutely. I, there's no denying it. Your family is a prime example of it's yeah. it's succeeding, right? I think it's especially fascinating because Gen Z and Generation Alpha, I think is what we've decided to call the next generation, right? They are very thrifty, but they also are very values-driven consumers. So 
it's surprising that they are embracing brands like Shein, knowing that there's not all that transparency behind their business practices and there's a lot of waste being created. So it's kind of a, a fascinating duality for younger generations, but I think there's no denying the impact this economy has on consumers. And I, we we feel this stress yeah. of what's going on um, financially and, and inflation. And so, um, and also the world has opened back up. We are, I always say intra-pandemic instead of post-pandemic because it's still going on, right? But we are behaving as if we're post-pandemic. We are going to events again. We are consuming at a pretty rapid pace again. And we need to balance that desire for consumption with the minimal spend that we have available to us. So for now, it's working. I think, you know, when we see another shift in the economy, which we eventually inevitably will with this younger generation who is so values oriented with their consumption, I would expect them to kind of shift back more towards um, sustainable, higher priced products that are more quality. But you also brought something up that's really interesting is they accept that this could arrive three weeks from now. Yeah. And that's something that I know we also talked a little bit about in our prep, which is consumers don't always care about two-day delivery. They don't always care about 30-minute delivery. They care about certainty. They know when they're buying for. If they're buying a dress that they need tomorrow for an event, they won't use Shein. But if they know that this event isn't for two months and they want to try a few different things, it works perfectly. So it's really about certainty and delivery timelines. And that's a trend that I love seeing is more and more retailers are becoming very certain and prescriptive with when you will get a product to arrive. And that's what I think is a winning model is just being really transparent around expectation with timing. And so so from an insight standpoint, do, do you think there is a pattern or, you know, that you could discern that says, Hey, kids between the age of like, you know, even if it goes down to like TikTok adoption, right? Like <laughs> things that are not good for us, we'll still do it. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, using unsustainable solutions, you know, for fast fashion versus, you know, if you are up until 19, 20, you become college going where you start getting your first income, your buying pattern kind of changes, right? Is this not going to be perpetual, right? Like college going kids and under are always going to not have enough money to buy things yeah. that are, you know, in fashion, and are not fast fashion, right? So mm -hmm. will will that kind of continue on? And like, it's also an impact on the pocketbook, right? Like who can spend? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think we have a society that wants to buy. We, we live in this world where consumerism is at the core of everything. I mean, everything is becoming shoppable. There's no denying that we are shopping everything. Absolutely. And everyone has a different level of means. And the younger you are, the less likely means you have to, to buy your own items. But I also think that, you know, we see this de-influencing trend now too, where people are getting more frugal, they're getting smarter about how they spend their money. And we're seeing influencers say, don't buy this, buy the less expensive, you know, alternative option because it's actually better. So there's also a savviness that's increasing with younger generations. The more we consume, the better we get at consuming, I like to think. So there's a little bit of that discernment happening too. Makes sense. Absolutely does. And I want to keep going on this thread because, you know, we work with a lot of brands and retailers and what's really, you know, I think when you think of, or when you consider LTV from their perspective is a really important, you know, critical element that they, they track and monitor and LTV meaning long-term value of their clients. So, you know, we have seen, you know, brands pay a lot of attention to that and 
what we have experienced through those relationships is they are they found that it's okay in some cases to have you know, the four to seven day delivery. Yeah. Um, there are certainly the Amazon like, but based off the different personas of their clientele and their customers, the ability to offer deferred shipping and would just love your your thoughts here because as you know from a, a logistics standpoint, yeah, how you you know, your you know, two of your biggest spends are your your infrastructure and your buildings and your location and leases and your people. So yeah, there's a lot of conversation going on right now is what is important to that maybe mid market. And I, and I think it's going to vary beyond, you know, based off the category of product that they're selling. But, you know, do we need quick commerce? Do we need micro fulfillment with one day? Do we need, you know, two day experience? Do we need four to seven? And, and if you just kind of look at how, you know, we'll pick one example, DHL e-commerce as an example, like they have seen rapid growth and that's a deferred shipment option. So we'd just love to get any, any thoughts you have on that front. This is where I love how retail is not one size fits all and how vast the space is. There are so many categories. Every category is different. Some behave more similarly to each other than others, of course, but I'm even just thinking there were a couple of things. I was in Florida last week for um, a friend's bachelorette party and we needed to order. I was planning it. So we needed to order a lot of decorations for the house, but we were staying at her parents' house and they were there up until the minute the festivities began. I didn't want all those packages arriving when her parents were still there. I didn't want to burden them, you know, right. have it all on their doorstep. I wish I could have deferred shipping just to make things easier for them while they were getting ready to leave. I also think about, you know, I I bought my home a little over a year ago. I had this massive headboard that is, I'm really outing myself here. It's over a hundred pounds. It's ridiculous. And I didn't want to have it waiting. I ordered it over the holidays because I moved in last January to this place and I didn't want it sitting at my old place because I couldn't haul it myself. So I would have loved to have had deferred shipping. Then I ended up having to ship it to my house and then have movers move it, which is more expensive. It's more logistics, you know, but then I think about sometimes I am ordering groceries and I want those immediately because it's for a recipe that I'm cooking that night and I don't want them to spoil and all of that. So it really depends on the category. There's such unique use cases in every shopping scenario. And I would love retailers to get to the point where they are so advanced that they're asking their consumers, when exactly do you need this for? That's what we'll accommodate. And I I do believe that that can be scalable with micro-fulfillment balanced with a bigger warehouse strategy as well. I think that can, like, if if that's what retailers should be doing, you know, I'll speak to it from a tech standpoint. I don't think it's that big of a deal because... right. You know, most retailers have set up a two-day type of delivery network and a lot actually have Express as an option, right? It's just a matter of saying, give me a date and guess what I can do? I would love that. I would actually, you know, if you, if you, you know, because we work a lot in, you know, the transportation planning side of things and specifically how do you ship orders out of the warehouse? You know, I know my demand pattern that Mondays are my busiest day of the week. Right, because I've accumulated all the demand, you know, in a in a traditional warehouse. Yeah, if you got a seven day warehouse, different scenario. But usually Mondays are my busiest day because Saturday and Sunday volume has accumulated, which means getting things to people on Wednesday is one of the hardest things to do in a two day network. So if I can start shaping demand, that could be like, hey, if you get this on Thursday, I'll give you a discount of some sort, right? Like yes. or you know some sort of credit or you know. And I don't think it's that hard to achieve, actually. If that's that's yeah. actually the need, 
I would yeah. say, you know, the retailers should start working on it. And if they're, and yeah, I, I mean, rather than just a two-day option, a five-day option, let me do it a definitive thing. Exactly. And this is where so many retail models can be kind of aggregated over time, right? You can balance things. You'll see maybe there are some types of products in particular that need to be delivered before Wednesday, but there are other types of products that people just aren't over ordering over the weekend. And so that would be kind of the shift, you know, there is so much advancement that could still happen with demand forecasting that trickles into logistics, I think is important. Exactly. And there, there was a one, uh, at one point, Amazon had did this where they were doing a, if you, you know, didn't, you were a prime member, but if you mm-hmm. wanted it like three days later, they would give yeah. you some sort of discount. I don't think that program exists anymore for some reason. Yeah, I haven't I've seen s- that option lately. So No, I've seen the option that you can defer it two days versus one day and stuff like yeah. that. But I don't, I haven't been rewarded for that. I don't think exactly, in a, yeah. a little while. Yeah. yeah. So Melissa, maybe tying it back to logistics and some of the things that are going on in the space today that retailers are doing to, I think what's pretty common or not common, but the two main ones that, that I wanted to focus on were, was like American Eagle Outfitter and the acquisition of Quiet Logistics mm-hmm. and Gap rolling out Gap Fulfillment. And, you know, the premise there is supply chain is not what makes you unique. And if we could have this shared infrastructure and, you know, cut down costs and, and be able to deliver the the same, you know, customer experience that mm-hmm. that's required, but... There's a lot that we could share, right? And yeah. supply chain being one of them with those two examples. So what are you hearing uh, in, in that regard as far as like, oh, A, what are your thoughts on maybe those two strategies? And do you think they're going to be more and more of that that we're going to see in the in the coming years? Absolutely. I love it. I think it's brilliant. I believe firmly that no retailer can be strong in every area. The path to purchase is at least a seven-step process, you cannot own the whole thing by yourself. And if you do, you won't be good at all of it. You even think about Amazon, for example, and it's it's great with fulfillment. It's great with how quick and easy it is in terms of a shoppable experience, but no one would really say it's delightful, that it's engaging. Amazon knows its strengths and, and clearly AE and Gap do as well. They know that they've figured out fulfillment and why not double down on that? I think it's brilliant. And also, They, of course, have to accept that their direct competitors are not going to embrace them for that. They're not going to give them their business in that department because they don't want them to have their data. But like we said, there are so many categories across retail. There are many other non-competitors that will embrace them for for their fulfillment strategy. And that's fantastic. And then they can still learn the intricacies of another business that they're not directly selling in. They can become even stronger in it. And those retailers can own a different part of the path to purchase. So I think it's brilliant. And there are a lot of other retailers that also invest in and acquire, whether it's, you know, startups or smaller scale businesses, because they start using them and they realize this could become our strength if, if we just bought them. So I, I think it's a fantastic strategy. And yeah, I, I love that they're doing that. Exactly. I mean, the hope on that front would be most of the mall brands, of course, you know, the apparel companies, because both of them mean apparel, Apparel companies might not end up partnering. I mean, they might end up surprising us. It might be a different segment category they don't play in yes. and they, they might pick someone up, right? Like mm-hmm. different conversation. But all the other mall categories that exist, if you can mm-hmm. start aggregating. But now we fall into the same trap, right? Like where, what's the end state with, that we want to achieve? Sustainability, right? We want to try and get things conveniently to people in a sustainable manner. So I don't have 
seven different trucks passing by my house every single day for different types of delivery strategies, right? And try and consolidate these shipments because that's kind of the holy grail, try and bring things together. And right now with both Gap and American Eagle doing, now we have a fractured strategy. So hopefully they both can come together and figure out the last mile because the, the biggest challenge is the last mile. If you can try and consolidate shipments going to my house, doesn't matter if it's coming through American Eagles or if it's coming through, you know, Gap service, if you can consolidate and bring it to my house, that's a better solution at the end of the day. So there is also partnership between these rival offerings that I see in the future that could create some sustainability. Yeah, that's the beauty of scalability and embracing sometimes your competitors, learning from each other and realizing that, you know, you, you can win together instead of by competing against each other all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think everything you're sharing with us, Melissa, and for everyone that's listening, that's on the, the logistics and supply chain of the fence is the best way we could provide value to our customers, which are brands and retailers is by knowing as much about them and where are the opportunities for us to, to again, as Gretzky said, you know, know where the puck is going um, and, you know, really be really all in to, to provide that value. And I know your, your company, CINT, uh, produced the Connected Retail 2023 report. Yes. And you had mentioned previously, like, the seven buying steps, right, um, in, in, a, in the purchasing journey. One of the things you mentioned that was really important in, in that uh, retail report was that one-to-one product creation models are a top trend for creating visibility and trust across that purchasing path. Mm-hmm. So... As much as it relates to knowing how people on the logistics side could provide that value to brands and retailers, we'd just love to get your thoughts on, A, I have no idea what one-to-one product creation <laughs> model is. So I've let me be honest up. there. I want to learn what, what does that even mean so I can provide value to my clients. But I think, yeah, anything you could share on that front and uh, what would be fantastic. Yeah. So the irony is we've been talking about scalability, right? And this is a little bit the inverse of that in the sense that it is designing products that are tailored to the individual. So it's kind of what Nike owned first, that like mass customization strategy where you create, you know, overall this kind of overarching product, but then the consumer can tailor it to themselves based on what they want. And they end up ordering a one-of-one product. The reason I think this is a big part of the future is one, sizing is so fragmented and so difficult. And it's a big driver of returns is that consumers just don't fit into the clothes that retailers are making. So there's inherent issues in scalability with that. And then two, with globalization, with all the diversity and trends, with the fragmentation of interests on behalf of consumers, there are just so many diverging interests when it comes to both wants and needs at a product level. And retailers that are able to cater to an individual will see repeat business in that way. That's ultimately what personalization is, right? So I was thinking about this as personalization of the product at a one-to-one level and figuring out how you can make that scalable and part of your business model so that people know they can always come to you with their unique needs. Interior Define is a prime example of a company that does this. You can kind of create your own one-of-one couch with them. That's what I was thinking with this. And I do think we'll start to see it in apparel as well, because we're having so many issues with sizing. I know, you know, we're, we're seeing it in the home space. We've seen it there for a while. I wouldn't be surprised if we see it in the fitness space a lot more as well, if people start designing more and more home gyms for themselves. 
cars. We've already seen it in auto for a long time. So I just think it'll be a little bit more mainstream because we are so much more aware of how diverse consumers are than ever before. And definitely on the apparel side, right? Like it just seems like on the apparel side, we are starting to see all of these take your body avatar, take pictures exactly. of yourself from multiple angles and it figures out your dimensions and, and yes. tailors the clothes to you. Mm-hmm. But does that then mean that it has been produced on demand? Or yeah, are they just some logistical yeah. heartburn right there? Yeah. Like, I mean, that... <laughs> yes, exactly. I think, yes. Um, I've seen a lot of smaller businesses do a lot of kind of pre-ordering, gauging interest. It allows more control over demand forecasting. So... Yeah. I mean, this is a juxtaposition for sure um, against the scalability that we've been talking about, but I think there are a lot of ways to do it in a a scalable way. I think it also kind of meets this drive down in the capital cost uh, as far as, you know, labor being increased. And it doesn't even matter. Even in China, labor is increasing, right? Like Mm -hmm. the the cost per unit is increasing on everything. And automation is now starting to play a big part where the capital cost is not as much. For you to be able to bring in and do something that's custom Mm -hmm. is still, you know, reasonable now. So I think we are going to, you know, see more and more of that uh, based on, you know, your comments and what we are seeing, at least on the automation side of the universe. It also goes back to what you said about the two biggest expenses in retail, usually being leases and infrastructure and then people. It does allow you to schedule better um, and take kind of a less is more approach. You're not just hiring people around the clock. You're not just, you know, enacting these factories around the clock. It, it goes back to kind of figuring out demand and then uh, adjusting your business model to such. Just in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, again, maybe it's the sustainable version of the Sheehan model, right? Because exactly. if I am getting a personalized you know, shirt, mm-hmm. I might be okay with two to three week delivery. Exactly. And so, yeah, maybe it's it's combining that. And the other thing is too, from, you know, as sustainability becomes more and more important throughout the, uh, throughout, you know, the gener- the upcoming generations, you know, you're producing less potentially and, and, you know, you nailed it. I mean, when it comes to apparel, you're usually buying two or three, hoping one fits. So now right. you cut down shipping costs, you cut out return processing, Exactly. All the labor associated with that. So there, there's a lot there that that I think is is good for everybody. If you can wait, right? If cons- will consumers be willing to to give a little more time? Exactly. You also get a lot more data on your consumer if you're designing specifically for them. They're incentivized to tell you their sizing, their age, all the details that you would need for tailoring or for design. Their preferences, who they're buying for, stuff like that. So makes a lot of sense. Well, maybe, Melissa, uh, last question for you, which, again, from a, a logistics supply chain standpoint, just to get as much value. And as you as you think about trends for 2023 for e-commerce logistics, what do you think those three main trends are and, and how what is the adoption rate for retailers embracing those? Interesting. Um The first one I would say goes back to kind of striking that right balance between micro fulfillment and also warehouses. It cannot be one size fits all. I think retail is a very hyper reactive industry and we can't move too quickly towards one or the other. I think for most businesses, you'll need a bit of both. So I think it's kind of getting into the middle of the pendulum instead of swinging back and forth like we've been doing in logistics. So that's the first thing I would say. I think the second one is using logistics to get closer to your customer. So like we said, 
getting to know them better, their preferences when it comes to delivery, even if it's extremely situational, depending on the product category or that specific product, tailoring memberships to delivery desires. So, you know, maybe I pay less because I promise you the retailer, I never want anything sooner than two days. And so my membership will be less expensive because I'm a less needy consumer. I think, you know, that's another kind of new subscription model that perhaps we could embrace from a logistics standpoint. I mean, I need to think a little bit more, but I do think what we talked about was really important in terms of that vertical integration and embracing newness in logistics as part of your business model and then leveraging that to cater to other retailers instead of just owning that for yourself and and kind of keeping it to yourself. So not being afraid of uh, connecting with your competition owning just one of your strengths when it comes to fulfillment, you know, maybe it's figuring out, like we said, that last mile is the biggest challenge. So if you're a retailer and you don't want to be the expert in last mile, leverage another retailer who is um, and really lean into that. So I would say even further fragmentation of the path to purchase by breaking up logistics even further and figuring out what part of that to own, because it is a competitive differentiator in 2023. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. Melissa, can't thank you enough. Uh, I think when this airs, you'll either be presenting at South by Southwest or it'll be the day after. So we want to wish you the best of luck uh, with that. And uh, would love for you to give everyone the opportunity to, you know, where do they follow you? Any any contact information you want to provide uh, would be fantastic. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Melissa Minko. Um, I like to use it as a way of creating conversations. So a lot of times I'll post articles just that's industry news and then ask people to engage with me and and share their perspectives. And I'll put a little bit of food for thought out there as well. Uh, I try not to spam on LinkedIn. I just try to get good conversations going. So that's, that's definitely where you can find me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. It's been an absolute pleasure having you join us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You got it all. Yeah, we got it all. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to maximize your supply chain. Available on all major podcasting channels. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode.